Hey beautiful soul, this is the Menopause Coach Podcast with me, your host, Adele Johnston. I'm helping you create a vibrant life of joy and happiness without your menopause stealing your personal power and sass. Together, we're making menopause mainstream. What's the difference between a headache and a migraine? And the difference is that a headache is a symptom caused by various different things. So it might be caused by trauma or infection or a tumor or something more sinister or primary headache disorder. So migraine is a primary headache disorder. Welcome back to another episode of the Menopause Coach podcast. I am your host as always, Adele Johnston, the Menopause Coach. And today I am absolutely thrilled beyond words that I am joined with Dr. Katie Monroe, who is our guest expert for this episode today. And I know many of you have been asking your questions around migraines. So I am delighted that I get to invite Dr. Katie Monroe to join us today. Katie or Dr. Katie Monroe is or was a GP partner in the NHS for over 25 years and developed migraine herself in her 40s around the time of her own perimenopause starting. And this experience was what led her towards the line of work that she is in today. Katie now works as a GP headache specialist in the National Migraine Centre, which is a charity that raises awareness on migraine, shares information and advises how to manage it and has its own podcast as well called Heads Up, which is really awesome. So we will pop some links to the charity website and to the podcast in the show notes as always. The podcast itself shares really quality information and raises awareness of this most common and debilitating condition, which is migraine. Katie is a best-selling author with her book, Managing Your Migraine, published by Penguin Life Experts, and it's out now on all major platforms, including Amazon. So if you would like to read some more, you would like to get more acquainted with Katie's work, then you can absolutely go ahead and do a search for Managing Your Migraine. Dr. Katie Munro, welcome to the episode, to the podcast. How are you today? Well, I'm uh, suffering from a cold, but hopefully that's not going to impair my voice too much. And I'm very grateful for the opportunity because I always try and say yes when people ask me to talk about migraine, uh, especially when it's linked with the menopause and the perimenopause because it's so common and there's so much need for good information out there. Absolutely. And it probably is a beautiful segue straight in then to a discussion point, because I think that everybody that is completely in our collective for the Menopause Coach podcast knows that this is more of a discussion and we like to just let things flow. It's not about Q&A. It's not about structure. It's all about where do we want to take the conversation? And actually the flow of that gets to be what it gets to be. So I would love to invite you to have a chat with me today around perimenopause. And we can come back to that because obviously this is a menopause lensed podcast. So we definitely need to bring that in. But I would be really keen to understand from your expertise, what is migraine? When we talk about migraine, we understand that it is not just a headache, right? I'm right in saying that? You're absolutely right in saying that. And it's one of the first questions that I often do get asked by journalists as well. What's the difference between a headache and a migraine? And the difference is that a headache is a symptom caused by various different things. So it might be caused by trauma or infection or a tumor or something more sinister or primary headache disorder. 
So migraine is a primary headache disorder. And so one of the symptoms of migraine is headache, but there are many other symptoms, as anybody who has migraine attacks knows, that can come along with, with a migraine attack. So I tend to talk about migraine, the disorder, and when you have an attack, it's, it's a migraine attack rather than talking about migraines and in the same way that we talk about people who have asthma, but we don't talk about them having asthmas. So we don't say, how are your asthmas? How's your asthma attack? So I think it's a way of separating migraine from headache because often people think, well, it's just a bad headache, isn't it? And actually, a mi migraine is a genetic neurological condition. So you, we know it runs in families. We know there are at least 42 genes that have already been identified. But whether you uh, actually suffer from migraine attacks, even if you have that genetic makeup, depends on what's happening throughout your life in terms of other what we call epigenetic factors. So that means behavioral things or environmental things that interact with your body and brain to make it ha go into a phase where it's having these repetitive debilitating attacks. So migraine is a lifelong condition, but that doesn't mean you'll have migraine attacks all through your lives. And, and some people don't have any at all until they go into the perimenopause, which is what happened to me. I'd never uh, experienced any, any sort of symptoms of migraine until I uh, went into my early 40s and then started getting these headaches every week and feeling very wiped out with them and thinking, what's going on? So that's where I started my kind of hunt for more knowledge for myself and, and brought me to where I am now. It's mm, incredible. So would I be right then in summarising that to say that migraine is the disorder and headache is the symptom. Yes. Amazing. Okay, so this makes it easier. And I think using this um, this episode as well, just to you know further my knowledge on this, because I'm not a headache or a migraine expert specialist of any, any degree or level. Um, and I'm learning as we go already, which is awesome. So I would be really interested if you're happy to share this with us, being inside our collective here. What was your own journey like? Because it's quite I suppose when we think about migraine, it's unusual to me to think, wow, you went all the way through into your 40s before you had your first migraine attack. So what did that look like for you? How did you know that that's what it was? Well, it took me a while, even as a GP, because uh, GPs and other doctors don't get very much training about migraine throughout our careers, really. And so I had been carrying on. I had my three children, didn't have any bother with headaches, uh, and then got into my early 40s and working as a GP, which is quite a stressful job sometimes, as I'm sure you understand. Uh, you very often didn't get lunch. You know, we're working long hours, getting overtired maybe. And I started to get headaches. And they were the sort of headaches that pounded and made me have to walk very gently around the surgery. Sometimes I would get them during consultations and I'd have to be sitting really still and trying to concentrate on what the patients were saying. And uh, it took me a while to suddenly think, oh, actually, these are probably migraine attacks. So I started on my journey to find out a bit more about how I could manage my attacks and uh, went off to various consultations with various GPs or specialists and finally ended up as a patient at the National Migraine Centre because uh, 
Uh, one of the beauty, uh, beauties of the National Migraine Centre is you can refer yourself. You don't have to have a referral from a doctor. So I pitched up and they were very, very helpful and very holistic in approach. And that's how I came to be sort of involved in working for the charity because I was so impressed with what they do uh, that I thought, right, now I know a bit more about it. I want to go and, and help other people not go through that horrible time. It, it went on for quite a long time. I was really very much impacted by repeated attacks of migraine. And I'm happy to say um, now I'm quite a bit older than my early 40s. I, uh, I'm actually much, much better. So that's a relief, but it means I can still keep buzzing around and uh, popping up all over the place talking about migraine to try and help other people uh, understand it. Because I think understanding it is key, really. We can talk a bit about that uh, as we go along, but learning what it is um, and understanding that your brain is set by the genes to be more irritable when things are changing inside or outside your body. Um, that in, empowers you to then have a bit of control. But then also there's a lot of learning that needs to happen around what medications, what other interventions, what supplements, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot to be talking about, but it's not really complicated once you understand it. Amazing. And, and you know, this is the reason as well why I absolutely wanted to invite you to come here and to chat with us and share this knowledge. I think it's that empowerment of knowing, isn't it, is the knowledge and being able to at least say, well, maybe it is this, and now I know how I can get further help. So I love that. And I love your journey. I love your backstory on how this was actually something that you started to become quite debilitated with yourself, knowing that you already had the, I suppose, academic medical background to you. It just leads that curiosity of, well, why is this happening? And, and what can I do? to get help for me and for others. So I love that. I absolutely love it. So if we talk a little bit then around symptoms of migraine, that might be quite intriguing to know that it's not just a headache, is it? If people do know a bit about migraine, they often do know that people who have a bad migraine attack often feel sick or may even vomit with it. Some people that's quite extreme and they really quickly uh, start having vomiting. So that's quite a well-known one. Um, there's also uh, often an understanding that visual disturbances may happen. So we know that uh, visual disturbances can come and go within an hour before the headache starts, and we call that aura. About 25 to 30% of people get migraine with aura, but most people get migraine without aura. And aura is an interesting one. We think that's what's happening in the brain is that electrical changes are rolling out over the surface of the brain. And when they roll out over the surface of the visual part of the brain, that's why people get this uh, blurred vision or zigzags or sparky lights. Uh, and they, it can be quite troublesome. And the other kind of aura, sometimes people describe smell, odd smells. So they might smell cigarette smoke or diesel when there's nothing there. So aura isn't just visual, but most of the people who get aura, it is visual. So other symptoms, one I always like to flag up is abdominal pain. And that's one that very commonly is a feature in children with migraine. So we often see children who've had repeated episodes where they look very pale, they feel quite sleepy, they want to go and lie down, and they complain of tummy ache. 
And if people don't think about that being a symptom of migraine in children where there isn't very much headache, they can then get sent off to pediatricians to have investigations for their tummies. There's also things like numbness and tingling can happen. Dizziness is quite a common one, especially in the perimenopause. Uh, for some reason, as women get older, they may find that their migraine symptoms change. And so we quite, quite commonly hear people saying, well, it used to be like this. And when I started having perimenopausal symptoms, I started to get more dizziness. Maybe other symptoms have increased or decreased. It's very variable. The other thing, and there's quite a lot of overlap, I think, with perimenopausal symptoms, um, brain fog, cognitive difficulties, difficulties in finding the words, and particularly when you're in the throes of an attack. You know, I had somebody the other day saying, I, I speak gobbledygook, <laughs> um, and she just couldn't get her brain to say what she wanted to say. So that can be really disconcerting. Fatigue is another one. And we have... Sometimes we talk about the four phases of migraine in the prodromal or the premonitory stage, which is in that sort of 48 hours before a migraine attack is really visible and, uh, and obvious to the person suffering it. You can get um, things like excessive yawning. Uh, and so people will be, oh, I'm really yawning today. And then the next day the headache kicks in. Um, they might feel irritable, mood swings. Uh, again, that may overlap with the perimenopause, but you know, I, I often uh, say to people, you know, it, it's not your fault. It's your brain is just kicking off. And sometimes in that um, preliminary stage, premonitory stage, people have a burst of energy and they rush around doing all their chores or errands or whatever. And then, oh, here's the migraine coming. So it's really variable. And it can vary from attack to attack. There's the, the first phase I've described, the aura phase, then the headache or impact phase. Sometimes people get, get an upset tummy or pass urine more frequently. And then that can last anything up to 72 hours. And then the postromal, we sometimes call it the hangover phase, is where the headache part is gone. The main part of the migraine is gone. But people still feel really kind of sluggish, not 100%. Sometimes describe it as being, you know, feel as if they've been run over by a steamroller. So the symptoms can vary depending on what phase you're in. They can vary from... Um, one part of your life to the other part later in your life. They can vary from attack to attack and they can vary very much from person to person. So we have some people in a family will say, oh yes, I get terrible migraine with aura. Somebody else is in the same family will say, well, I'll never get aura. The pain of migraine tends to be throbbing or pulsing. And the word migraine comes from the word hemicrania. So we should say migraine really, but I always say migraine. I've just got in the habit. doesn't really matter as long as you manage it well, is what I say. <laughs> so traditionally, people have thought that the pain is in half of the head. Hemicrania means half of the head. But very often, uh, it can be over the whole head, or it may be on the right, then move to the left, or vice versa. It can be in the neck, can be in the shoulders. And the other place where uh, people get a bit confused is they can get sinus pain. So in the face, sometimes if they have a lot of migraine pain in the face, when the jaw, they can go off to see their GP or, or near nose and throat specialist even and get treated for sinusitis or even dental problems when actually it's recurring migraine attacks. So loads of things to consider and, uh, and getting a careful history is how we try and 
really make the diagnosis accurately for people. Yeah. Do you know, even just hearing you share all of that, it is a bit of a mind boggle when we think about perimenopause has a lot to answer for, especially with women and well, with all women, with how much we have these changes within our endocrine system and within how our body then responds within those changes. But rightly so at the start of that, you'd said, you know, a lot of these symptoms can be kind of not misdiagnosed because I don't really see it as that, but maybe mixed up a little bit around, well, it's perimenopause rather than just being in that one space. So there's a lot here. And there's, I mean, this is the million dollar question, right? But how do we determine the difference? Is there a way of us being able to do any testing around whether it is migraine or migraine? I don't think we have to think of it as two separate things. I think we have to concentrate on and looking at both together and making sure we're doing the optimum. So we, a lot of the symptoms are overlapping, but also some of the treatments that we use uh, will be helpful for both things. Treating the, the fluctuations in estrogen is the key that aggravates migraine uh, in women at that sort of age and stage, because we know that estrogen goes up and down like a, like a roller coaster during the years of the perimenopause. And we know that the brain of somebody with migraine is sensitive to change. Uh, so anything that changes um, adds together with other changes to irritate the brain to push it nearer to the threshold to have an attack. So estrogen we know in women is a powerful driver. And we see this right from puberty. So before puberty, girls and boys have the same amount of migraine, the, the same incidence of migraine. As soon as the girls start having menstrual cycles and having that change in estrogen throughout the month, girls pull away and three times as many women as men get migraine attacks. And that's mainly down to estrogen. And we know that women who have menstrually related migraine attacks are more likely to get bother with uh, migraine attacks increasing in the perimenopause. But even people as, as myself who don't have menstrually related attacks may, uh, may sort of struggle. And so looking at the way we can reduce change, and I think that's one of the underlying things that people sometimes haven't realized quite how important it is. So lifestyle, being routine, and then maybe adding in things like HRT to smooth out estrogen levels can be really, really helpful to help the brain fog, whether it's due to perimenopause or whether it's due to migraine, that's still a very powerful and strong symptom. And I sort of say getting the right recipe for each individual person is what we aim to do at the National Migraine Census. It's a lot of discussion. It's a, it's a number of different areas. It's really not just about, here you go, have this prescription medication. You know, it's, uh, it's about starting right at the beginning. Um, we talk about nutrition and sleep and various supplements and things like that. I can go into more detail about those if you like. Yeah, I think it would be beneficial to do that because when we think about, you know, we've we've, we've kind of touched on, well, what is migraine? What is, are the symptoms? Um, I think naturally it's then great to talk about, well, what can we do to be a little bit more kind of alerted and aware to it? But I'm going to share a little bit of a story, actually, because it's just reminded me of when I was helping one of my own one-to-one -one clients and she'd suffered for years with migraine. You know, she was like, it's, it's always really horrible, you know, especially at least once in the month I'm in my bed. It's kind of three to four days of my week. I'm just out because of what you've shared there as well around 
for her, it actually started as she got very, very, very tired the day before her migraine. Her migraine would attack and she would just be completely out. It was in bed, you know, the curtains drawn and and just having to ride it out. So I actually started to do a bit of research around what can we do to support if at all possible. And lifestyle came out as one of the big things. And actually, this is probably quite an interesting topic of conversation with you whilst I have your beautiful brain. But the research that I managed to acquire through PubMed, I'll try and find the reference for you, absolutely showed us that when we can do some proactive lifestyle movements, such as low intensity, steady state movement, resistance style training, that actually we can support the brain as a bit of a, rather than treatment, a bit more of a kind of prevention, if we want to use that word. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I think it's absolutely of critical importance uh, to get all the things right that you can get right in your lifestyle. We know that exercise, the, the thing with exercise, I think we should probably all be doing more of it. Um, I know I'm guilty of not doing so much in this horrible rainy weather. Um, but we, there is quite good evidence that if you can do repeated, regular exercise as a person with migraine, then it will be helpful. And I think it was quite recently that a paper came out saying resistance training. We know that's important too. So the endorphins from doing some aerobic exercise can be helpful natural pain relievers. Um, It enhances our mood. I mean, there's so many benefits to exercise, aren't there, really? One word of caution, though, and and there will be some people who say, you know, I can't do exercise because it triggers me to have a migraine attack. So then we go back a step and say, look, one of the things you need to do is think about the connection between the brain and the neck and shoulders. So be careful if you're triggered by Uh, doing anything that involves straining on your neck and shoulder. So um, just watch out for that. So hyperextending your neck if you're cycling or swimming breaststroke or if you're pulling weights down in the gym or whatever, just be careful of that. And then the other thing is if you're doing a lot of exercise but you haven't eaten or drunk anything and you get uh, your blood sugar drops down, you get dehydrated, that is another big push towards getting a migraine attack. So you have to do exercise in the context of good nutrition, good hydration, and good sleep. Um, so we we do start talking about how you keep a nice even blood sugar throughout the 24-hour period. And sometimes that involves eating more protein, more healthy fats, maybe um, more slow-release complex carbohydrates rather than the high GI carbs. Lots of omega-3 can be helpful. So loads of oily fish in your diet, or if you're uh, not keen on fish, or uh, I say to people, you you pulled the fish face when I said eat lots of oily fish because people pull a face if they're not keen. You can have supplements in omega-3, obviously, if, if that suits you better. And um, getting the health of your gut right, I think, is really important as well, because we know the gut is the second brain. And so nurturing those microbiome, uh, little bugs that help your gut to produce the, the neurochemicals that we know are also really helpful. So this is why I say that migraine is a whole body condition. It's, it's not just about treating the pain in your head. It's about making sure your whole body is, is healthy and, and not contributing to the migraine attacks. We know that routine is really important. And um, when 
I go across question people like, when do you eat? What time do you get up and eat your breakfast? Do you go to the gym and then eat? And then you get on I go later or have a snack before you go to the gym. Or do you have long periods of time where you don't eat anything because you're busy at work? That used to be me. Um, and sometimes, especially with um, kids, that a bedtime snack can be really helpful. So if you have an early dinner and then you have nothing to eat for 12 to 14 hours overnight, And then people say to me, but what about intermittent fasting? So intermittent fasting doesn't really, I mean, there's quite a lot of evidence that it's quite good for us, but I don't think it's great for people who are having quite frequent migraine attacks because their brains are already quite irritable. So what I say to people is don't try it yet. Let's settle you down. Let's get your brain feeling a little calmer, a little less easily irritated. And then if you want to try it, uh, I have no issues with it. The other thing uh, I'm always bang on about in this in this latitude in our rainy climate is vitamin D. And uh, there is some evidence that low vitamin D aggravates episodic migraine. So that's migraine that's coming on less than 15 days in a month. And if people are low in vitamin D, they have more tendency to have higher frequency or even chronic migraine. So getting your vitamin D level right is really important. And of course, if you're somebody, one of the symptoms I didn't mention, there's so many symptoms, it's hard to think of them all off the top of my head. Um, Sensitivity to light is very common in people during a migraine attack. But it can also persist in between attacks. So those are the people that are going to be particularly at risk of a low vitamin D level because they're not going to go sit in the sun because it irritates their brain very quickly. So they're the ones who will say to me, well, I just have to wear sunglasses and wear a wide-brimmed hat or a cap or, you know, shut my eyes when I'm in the car as a passenger, the lights flickering through the leaves of the trees. And sound sensitivity is another very common symptom, you know, that uh, if the TV's on in one room, the radio's on in the other, and the kids are fighting in between, uh, then people who have sound sensitivity can be like, ah, I mean, we can all be a bit like that if that's going on, I think. This is just blowing my mind with all of these different elements of you know realizing that it's actually a, a complete body connection, right? It's it's the senses, it's the, the body itself. And, you know, even coming down to the fact that vitamin D plays such a crucial role, you're absolutely right. It's one of the supplements that as a nutritionist, I will look at and I work with ladies all over the world, but even my ladies in Florida, we have times of the year that we supplement with their vitamin D because unless they're going outside without their sunscreen on, which I would always advocate to do first thing in in the day rather than the sun at its highest, but we really need to be quite nakey nakey. We have to, you know, have quite limited clothing on so that we are absolutely getting the sun rays into the skin. It's not just the arms and legs. So, I think there's this whole misconception that actually, yeah, I'm getting vitamin D because I'm outside, but the reality is, bold statement, but the majority of people are vitamin D deficient. I think that's really true. And I think particularly in this country, because the angle of the sun on our skin between October and March is too low. Even if you go out for a nice sunny walk on a crisp November day, 
you're not going to make any vitamin D in your skin. So you have to have made it all by the time October comes along. So yeah, it's really important. And then kids as well, you know, it's so important for other things like strong bones, you know, uh, immune system, there's some evidence that prevents certain cancers. So yeah. The other thing I didn't mention, talking about getting out early in the day, sleep routines are very important for people with migraines. So uh, our brains, as people with migraine, prefer if we go to bed at the same time and wake at the same time every day, have the same number of hours of sleep, and it has to be good quality, restorative sleep. And some people, especially in the perimenopause, really struggle with that because they're woken up by night sweats or you know, they have this hot flushes or they've got anxiety as part of their perimenopausal symptoms and that can make them toss and turn fretting about things. There's often a lot of other changes in a woman's life in the perimenopause. So it may be pressures of career, pressures of family, you know, elderly parents or children going into teenage, maybe going off to uni. Lots of other things can be changing. So I don't ever think it's just one thing that causes migraine attacks. It's always a combination of factors. And we can do our very best to control uh, our routine and control the changes. But even with the most diligent, you know, perfect lifestyle, we will still get attacks of migraine because that's just the nature of the beast. So never, I always say to people, never blame yourself. You haven't failed if you still get them. It's just something that still happens. But you can sometimes do things to help prevent it. Amazing. Okay, well, that's a beautiful segue into what can we do? So if we have a beautiful soul listening to this right now thinking, yep, okay, I'm hearing you, I'm there, I've got all these things going on. What can we do to support ourselves? Probably in the proactive and then treatment as the reactive. I think the first thing is to understand migraine because then you can think about, right, how can I control change going forward? So it's useful to keep a headache diary, but I like those to be really simple, especially if people are having frequent attacks. It gets very depressing just writing down every day, oh, I have another one, I have another one. So I just say to people, I just want you to write down the maximum pain you had that day out of 10 or impact if it's dizziness or uh, one of the other symptoms of brain fog is more bothersome. Write down the acute medication that you took and write down if you had a period or not. And all the other stuff I don't really need to, to do. Once you've started to do that, you can begin to think about the two days before your migraine was obvious. And then think, right, what was changing? Can I identify any changes there that going forward I could prevent? So for example, I always say, you know, if people are going traveling, people with migraine will do better to be going to the airport for a flight in the middle of the day rather than in the middle of the night. So thinking about planning ahead around times that will be high risk where there are lots of changes. Another example is weddings. You know, if you go to a wedding, you get stress because you're getting packed, you get excitement, you get um, a drive there, you then have a long period of time while the bride and groom have photographs taken before you get given any food. Uh, you may have alcohol as a as a toast to the bride and that's a known trigger. So thinking about all of those things that may potentially aggravate. So taking control as much as you practically can. The supplements that, that I advise, there are five supplements. We've covered some of them already, but I'll just mention the others. So omega-3 and vitamin D we've talked about. Magnesium is a calming mineral, but, uh, and 
we do often have quite a lot of calcium in our diet, but not quite as much magnesium as maybe we need. So, and magnesium can be helpful for sleep quality. So I advise people to take a bioavailable form of magnesium. Usually it's something like the glycinate form or maybe the malate form. Um, the citrate form is the one that has the evidence, but it's quite laxative. You need to quite, take quite a high dose of it. All of these supplements you need to take for at least three months before you can really judge whether they're working. So magnesium I'm a big fan of, and it's also multiple uses in the body and, and worth topping that up. I mean, it's so it's just so helpful. The mantra is nothing works for everybody, but something works for most people. And it's just finding what that something is for you as an individual. Vitamin B2 or riboflavin is quite helpful in some people with migraine. And the dose in adults is 400 milligrams daily. And then coenzyme Q10 has some evidence. And so people with migraine may have a problem in their intracellular energy production. And so a lot of these supplements seem to be helping the energy production within cells. Uh, and I think that that can be very helpful. So um, looking into those, and people are often very help, helped by um, just simple changes in supplements before they go on to the more acute treatments or the preventative treatments where doctors start to get involved. And I can talk about those in a minute. Yeah, I think what's quite interesting in all of this is, um, so all of those supplements that you've talked about, these, and, and I'm very, very mindful that as a nutritionist as well, I don't tend to blanket approach supplementation. Vitamin D is the exception, and omega-3 if the lady is vegan or is not eating enough oily fish in the week. And you know, there's some weeks I don't, and I will supplement my own omega-3 as a result of that. Um, so those two aside, they're kind of like my little, that's fine for everyone. Um, but you mentioned CoQ10 or coenzyme Q10. I absolutely love this one. And I tend to use it quite a lot in many of my ladies, not all of them, but many of them, especially those that are, you know, my half marathon runners and the ladies who are very quite active in their training. Because again, the evidence behind that supplement is brilliant on, like you've said, that intracellular level of repair and ultimately acting almost as that anti-inflammatory, um, antioxidant style property. But another one that I was really interested in hearing your view on now that you've mentioned this is creatine monohydrate. So again, there's some really nice evidence that's coming through for creatine monohydrate for menopausal women and the brain. Are you familiar with, and I'm kind of putting you on the spot with this one, but are you familiar with anything that then relates into migraine with that? I'm familiar with creatine, but I haven't come across any studies that are particularly looking at migraine. Um, somebody did mention to me the other day, another one with a very long name that I will fail to pronounce, PHEA, palmitoyl something or other. Um, and there was a study look at, beginning to look at that. So I think the thing is, I think we need to be, first of all, eating a balanced, healthy diet with lots of, you know, a variety and in, in, in the vegetable, plant-based foods and and getting as much as we can by a healthy diet. But I, I agree with you, Adele. I think it's about finding a targeted supplement. And lots of uh, my patients say, oh, I take a multivitamin. And I think a multivitamin very often has 
tiny amounts of everything, which is not much good for anything, <laughs> if you know what it's I mean. It's not beneficial. I agree with you. Yeah, I completely agree. The recommended daily allowances on these are very, very conservative. And we normally find that if we look even at the vitamin D content, it's so negligible that it's even in there that it's kind of like, well, they shouldn't have even put that on the bottle. So <laughs> I think that is reassurance, right? There's this whole rabbit hole we could go into around placebo and how much that actually plays a big role as well. I love placebo effects on certain things as well. And then I suppose then just beautifully then for those that think, right, that's great. You've kind of covered off that, you know, lifestyle is important. We're not here to make things complicated for you. And, and, you know, that's one thing I I don't stand for is the complexities around everything. It's It's all about how do we make this easy? So Just to summarize on the more lifestyle and the kind of non-medication side of things, it would be, let's make sure that you are moving and you are active in your day. Um, For those of you that have followed me for a while, you know that I have one non-negotiable in the day for movement, which is steps for health. So that's an everyday occurrence. It must happen. So you are mobile or your own equivalent of that movement. And if we look at the nutrition pillar, This is where we want to make sure that you're getting adequate intakes of protein because of the cell level repair in your body that that can bring, but also the healthy fats. And we touched on that as well. Um, Brilliant for hormone production, especially in us females. And just keeping it very simple when we think about this. Um, But as we move in then to, and we've not even touched on the mind pillar, I feel like that's a full episode on itself with what we can do with breath work and meditations and all that good stuff. But if we come inside the medical space with this, what does a typical treatment journey then look like? If we were then to say, look, I've done all this, I've, I've really sorted my nutrition out, you know, Dr. Monroe, I've got to the point where I'm now like, no. This cannot go on anymore. What does the medical treatment look like for migraine? Okay, and just to absolutely agree with you that breath work and mind work is also part of what we discussed. But once somebody is having episodes that are impacting on their lives and they've tried the easy over-the-counter things and they come to us, then there are three. So I divide it into acute rescue remedy, medication, and preventative intervention. So just to talk about the acute rescue treatments, the the three pillars of that really are, first of all, to have something to move the stomach contents on, because we know that migraine affects the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve uh, makes our gut function properly. And if it's not functioning properly, that's why people feel sick and that's why they vomit. Uh, But more importantly, if you take some painkillers and your stomach's not emptying properly, they're not going to get absorbed properly. So advising people about taking an anti-nausea tablet that moves the stomach contents on, an anti-inflammatory painkiller and a triptan. And I just talk a little bit about those two things. So an anti-inflammatory painkiller like ibuprofen or naproxen, And also, some people really benefit from soluble aspirin. Obviously, don't take all of those together. And you do need to check that you can safely take those and you don't have gastric ulceration or indigestion. So always check that you're safe to do those. They are better than paracetamol, but I have got some patients who use 
paracetamol with an anti-nausea tablet. So the role of the anti-nausea tablet is to put those non-steroidal anti-inflammatories or the soluble aspirin into the right place so that it's quickly absorbed so that you can really squash that migraine attack before it grows. We often advise, which after we've just been talking about nutrition, we often advise dissolving three soluble aspirin in a sugary fizzy drink. So sugary fizzy drink, not normally a health food, but the sugar If your brain is irritable because you've been hungry, that quickly gives your brain some fuel. The fizz will dissolve the soluble aspirin to a large surface area. And if you're drinking a caffeine-containing drink like Coca-Cola, then the caffeine can work as a what we call a co-analgesic. It gives the pain-killing effect a boost. So that can be really, really helpful um, if you can safely take aspirin. And then the triptans. So these are specifically for migraine, and there are seven different ones. And so often I hear that people have tried one, didn't like it and gave up. But the triptans can be amazing for getting rid of the pain and the other symptoms. And so it's worth going back to your GP and talking about which one could you try next. And they come in different formulations. So maybe a tablet or a melt on the tongue wafer or a nasal spray. And some of them are short acting, some of them long acting. And we find that people will find one that really suits them, even if they've found one or two that really don't work very well for them. So that that's the three things really, the anti-nausea tablet, the, the painkillers, and the triptans. So that's our recipe for acute treatments. And there'll be variations on that uh, with different people. Two things I'd like to emphasize. One is do not use codeine for your acute treatment because very commonly that will aggravate the gastric stasis, makes people very sleepy, seems to improve the acute pain, but actually is at the same time activating chronic pain pathways. So it's much more likely to push you into my second point, which is beware of medication overuse headache. So if you're taking any of these acute painkillers on more than 10 days in the month or triptans on more than 10 days in the month, you can actually give yourself a background daily headache that just doesn't go away. And we have to have a whole nother conversation about that. Really important to know about that. So what we then say is if you're having about five episodes a month where you're having to use that acute treatment, then we should be talking to you about prevention in terms of either medication or injection therapies or neuromodulation devices. And many people haven't come across these options, including GPs, actually. Quite a lot of GPs don't know about them. I didn't when I was first when I was first suffering from migraine, I had no idea about all of these different things. So the medication is often borrowed from other conditions. So it might be that we are prescribing antidepressants or uh, anti-blood pressure tablets or anti-epileptics. But we have many years of using these to prevent migraine. And patients read the leaflet and say, oh, you've given me an antidepressant. Yes, but in a very different dose than we would use it as an antidepressant. And it is very good at calming the brain. So some of these can be very helpful. Some of all of them have their own little list of side effects. And we can't tell by looking at you which one will suit you. And you have to take the maximum tolerated dose for at least three months of each of these to find the one that suits you and works for your brain, which is a slow and frustrating process.
process. But it's really important that people understand that because we often hear people saying, well, I, well, I started on the low dose and I took it for a fortnight and it didn't work. So I gave up. But you, So you need to have that education about what you're trying to achieve. The next group is the injection therapies and Botox is very helpful for some people with migraine. So it was discovered by women in the States who were going off for cosmetic Botox and coming back to their cosmeticians and saying, oh, I don't know what you've done, but my migraine attacks are better. So there's been a lot of research around exactly how many doses and where. And we now know that Botox can be very helpful in what it's acting on is the sensory nerves rather than cosmetic Botox, which is aiming to get those motor nerves uh, that cause wrinkles and paralyze those. So reducing the sensory inputs from around the neck and the, uh, the neck and shoulders and the back of the head as well as the forehead uh, is how we do Botox. And we need to do it every 12 weeks and it's really helpful in some women. It's interesting. So I'm very open about all of these things. And I actually tried Botox for the first time last year and got what was called baby Botox. Um, and what the first thing that I realized was almost instantaneously, I have always since I started my probably my early 30s when perimenopause kind of came to, to visit, that's when I started to notice that I've always just got a very, it's I don't know, you might you might say, oh, Adele, this sounds like migraine. But it's um, always just been a heavy pressure at the front of my head. And it never goes away. It's just never something that goes away. So I've learned how to just, you know, live with it. It's just something I don't take pain relief for it. It's not painful. It's just I recognize it. So what we've um, what we established then was when I went and had the cosmetic Botox, almost instantly when he'd finished, I, I was like, oh, my God it's no longer there. Now, it hadn't obviously taken it away. It had obviously just muscular-wise changed the dynamics of the muscle. So I was no longer feeling it. And that interested me. So I did my own reading on it after that. And that's when I came across so much research in Botox actually being used for other types of ailments and, and problems such as migraine and headache. So I had a question on it as, is this a treatment source that you are aware of and use? Yes, it is something that we offer from the, uh, the National Migraine Centre. It used to be one of the main things that people would move to if they'd tried several tablet preventers and hadn't succeeded. But now, just staying on, under the heading of injection therapies, now we do have the self-administered monoclonal antibody injections, which have really made a big difference to people with migraine. So we can prescribe those as well. And they are available via the NHS, as is Botox. But because of the NHS and the budget pressures and all of these kind of things, uh, the NICE guidance for Botox and for the for these what we call anti-CGRP monoclonal antibodies is that you have to have tried three tablet preventers before you are eligible to have these under the NHS. So anti-CGRP drugs, CGRP is calcitonin gene-related peptide, which is a very long and fancy term for saying it's a brain protein. Um, so we know that it is made, it's a neurochemical made in the brain. And it's uh, back in about the nine, late 1980s, uh, they were doing research to try and understand migraine and why, you know, what's causing it. And so they infused CGRP 
into patients who weren't having migraine and gave them migraine attacks. So it was discovered that it was really quite <laughs> quite an important neurochemical in migraine. And so they went on from there to develop medications that can block the action of that particular neuropeptide. So that's been wonderful. So here we are now with medications specifically designed for migraine rather than borrowed from other conditions, very well tolerated generally, injectable by auto-injector. So people get it delivered to their house. It's like an EpiPen type delivery. So you press a button, hold it firmly on your leg or your tummy, and it injects. And you do it every 28 days. And we now in some people who are having this treatment, we hear the words life-changing in clinic. Um, people cry with happiness because they're so, so, so relieved. Now, it's the, tr the problem with any new medications is they are very expensive. If you can't get it on the NHS and you decide to, to have it through us, it is going to be quite costly. It is increasingly available on the NHS, and I think people need to know about it because it can make all the difference. I've had women say to me, you've actually saved my career. That's amazing, isn't it? And I think this is like, it's, it's massive. And, and I have such, such an abundance of want for finding out more of this. It's not just about, you know, what is available to us through the NHS, but it's actually about what is available to us through choice. And I always come back to this word of we always need to have that choice to be able to choose our direction of care I fully appreciate that for some people that choice is limited by financials and for others it's a little bit more expandable by financials. So I think within all of this it's it's knowing well what is the options and then being able to make those options available to yourself. And it's amazing that as a charity as well that you you and your team are offering all of these varieties of care. So is, is amazing. The other type of injections, just to, for completeness, the greater occipital nerve is at the back of the skull on both sides. And we also can offer injections of steroid and local anesthetic there. And that can be very helpful for some people as well. But it, again, it's about finding the right solution for each individual person. And then the third heading that I mentioned was neuromodulation devices. And there is a little diamond-shaped device which you stick an electrode onto your forehead and then it attaches magnetically and makes you look a bit like Wonder Woman, which is always a plus, I feel. Um, you press the buttons on it and you can press it either once for an acute treatment program or twice for a preventative program. And it gives a buzzing sensation, a little bit like a TENS machine. But it's been, I mean, I have a lot of patients who really, really uh, like using that. That's a Cephaly dual device. Um, and there are there is another device that uses magnetic pulses, but it's quite limited where you can get hold of that. One of the um, headache specialists at Guy's and St. Thomas's has done a lot of research on that. So there are lots of options. And then just for the future, at the moment, NICE is looking at two new tablets or dissolvable tablets called G-Pants in a different family. And they block CGRP, but you don't have to inject yourself. Um, so we're waiting to hear, and we should hear in the summer, whether those will be available on the NHS, but we can offer those through the National Migraine Centre as well. Uh, and one of them is available for either acute treatments or prevention. So it's really exciting time to be working 
in the field of migraine, you know, just getting the information out there. Absolutely. And, you know, it's just a big celebration that that's exactly what you do what we're doing right now and you mentioned about NICE the the guidance that we've got there there was a bit of an update with the migraine section in 2022 on that so big fingers crossed then that we're going to have further adaptations and updates on that as well as this just evolves and grows but I think like anything you've said you know we, we fully appreciate that there are constraints that are always going to be limitations to what the National Health Service in the UK can offer um, but I think the biggest, widest piece on all of this is helping the audience here today, these beautiful, powerful women, know that there is not just what's available through your NHS or your GP. There are people like Dr. Katie Munro available. Yeah. And this is where the National Migraine Centre come into this as well. So do not sit stuck, lost or unsure. Do not sit in pain. Do not allow your life to go on hold yeah, it comes back into this point of we get one shot at this life currency and we do not ever know when that is going to finish for us. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, Katie, this has been phenomenal. I have really honestly enjoyed every moment of doing this with you. But before we go, a couple of questions. Number one would be, what would be your three guidance tips that you can leave us with as an audience to you right now? First of all, I think the understanding what migraine is, is the key. So get as much information as you can, uh, looking on our website, listening to the podcast, maybe having my, a look at my book. The Migraine Trust has an excellent website as well. and uh, They have a helpline so if you're struggling at work. Uh, that can be useful. So I think, first of all, understanding what migraine is and what the options are. The second one, I think, is just from an acute treatment point of view, is be careful not to overuse those acute medications and make the situation worse. And in particular, don't use codeine. And the third one, I think, is just to think about your descendants as well as your ancestors. So I'm very keen to make sure that children with migraine get cared for properly and get identified early. So when I'm asking about family history, which I always do, I always say to people, and how many children have you got and what age are they and do they have tummy aches, travel sickness, or have they had infantile colic? Do they have cyclical vomiting? Because those are all linked conditions that make us think, oh, they might be getting migraine in the future but there's always hope and because it's such a great area of development at the moment even if your children are suffering from migraine don't worry there'll be things that we can do to help if you are listening to this right now thinking i don't want this to end i want to know more then you can head over to heads up which is the podcast that katie and her team at the national migraine center have and host and you can also go ahead and purchase katie's book managing your migraine published by penguin life experts Thank you so much for being present. Dr. Katie Monroe, you are a blessing in this space. Thank you for your time and your energy and your life currency today. Where can people find you if they have questions and maybe want to link in with you directly? I'm on Instagram as migraine.doc. We will pop that as a link into our show notes so that people can just click and join you. Amazing. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your day today and we appreciate you for being here with us. I truly hope this episode has sparked something vibrant inside of you. I ask only one thing. To help keep these episodes coming, please subscribe and share with another in your life. That's how we reach more women worldwide. 
and we help them step into their power because together we are working to remove any of the stigma and taboo that surrounds menopause. This does not need to be a daunting, a scary, a taboo time in anyone's life. So together, let's make menopause mainstream.